Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Palm Sunday is kind of a doozy of a Sunday in the church here, isn't it? We've got extra readings and extra prayers. And to top it all off, we've got the rite of confirmation today. A very joyous day of celebration, rejoicing. Rejoicing in the fact that God's promises that came to these young people many years ago have been brought to fruition in their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I get an amen. amen. <laughs> okay. Well, Palm Sunday is now these days also known as the Sunday of the Passion. And it recounts all the things that happened to Jesus during that Holy Week or Passion Week. It's kind of like all of Holy Week rolled into one service. We get a summary of the whole thing, though, in one single word. Hosanna. Hosanna means, save us, Lord. Shouts of Hosanna greeted Jesus as he rode on in majesty into Jerusalem. A shout of hope that expresses exactly what Jesus came to do. And actually what Jesus' name means. That name, which is above every name, means the Lord saves. In fact, Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yehoshua, which sounds an awful lot like Hosanna, or as Jews would probably pronounce it in Hebrew, Hoshana. So they're related. He came to save, riding in on, on in humility even as he's greeted as a conquering king. Now, we often think of the whole symbol of Jesus riding on a donkey as a picture of Jesus' humility. But there is one peculiar thing about Israelite kings. For 14 centuries or so, the fact that they had always rode donkeys in demonstration of the fact that the Lord, their God, was Israel's true king. And now... Here on Palm Sunday, Israel's God and Israel's king, all in one person, rides in in the same way that David and Solomon and others had done before him. There is no mistaking the claim that Jesus is making by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And yet he knows what they don't. He knows precisely what he's riding toward, the road to the cross. This road strewn with palms and coats is the Lord's road of salvation for us. He rides in as a mighty conqueror, but he's not there to conquer the Romans. That's what everyone would have liked. But instead, he is there to conquer the true enemies, sin, death, and the devil. The road began at the gates of Jerusalem, and it ends at the place of the skull. He's fulfilling what the prophet Zechariah foretold. Rejoice, rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. His road is paved with palm branches and coats and is garnished with shouts of Hosanna. Save us, Lord. The palm-strewn road is also the road of our Lord's humbling for our salvation. He came as the suffering servant, not to be served, but to serve, to lay down his life as a ransom, 
to buy back humanity from its enslavement to sin and death. This is the road of our Lord's passion. His passion to save you. Who for the joy set before him, the joy of saving you personally. The joy of raising you up from the death of your sins. The joy of bestowing life on the world and reconciling all things to his Father. That kind of joy. For that joy, Jesus endured the cross and scorned its shame, as the writer to the Hebrews says. Well, Now, maybe the shouts of Hosanna were a plea to save them from the Romans. That's maybe what people meant. That's entirely possible and likely. It very well could have been a call to a holy war. Jesus is indeed fighting a holy war, but not in the way that people were expecting. He's fighting a holy war, but not against flesh and blood, and the powers, but from the powers of darkness and evil. He's fighting to redeem flesh and blood, not against it. Jesus enters this kingly city of Jerusalem as a conquering king, riding on to be conquered by death and hell. A conquering king riding majestically to his own death. The road to the cross goes right through the streets of Jerusalem. Streets that had been paved with the blood of the prophets. And Jesus says that it's not fitting for a prophet to die apart from Jerusalem. And he's got a point there. The city that kills the prophets, the messengers, the emissaries of that vineyard owner that were beaten and killed by the tenants, as we heard last week. This is why he came, knowing that the Hosannas would soon change to crucify him. This road to the cross goes through the temple, the house of God, which had been given for sacrifice and for prayer. The temple had been the place where God met directly with his people. It was intended by God to be a place where people could meet God face to face and receive forgiveness for their sins in light of God's mercy and his undeserved kindness towards sinners. In Jesus' day, religion had changed the temple into more like a banking house, a place of transactions and bargaining with God, even trying to bribe God. On this road to the cross, Jesus reclaims his Father's house as a place of prayer and forgiveness. And he declares that one stone will not be left upon the other, and that the temple of his body, the real dwelling place of God, would be raised up in three days. This road to the cross runs from the temple to a borrowed upper room and a table. Judas is identified as the betrayer who was foretold in the psalm who breaks bread with him and then would betray him. He reclaims the bread of the Passover from some 14 centuries earlier and he applies it to his own body. He takes this Passover bread, the hard unleavened bread of affliction from the night of God's great deliverance from slavery and he attaches it to his own body. It's no longer just about Israel's exodus 
from Egypt, but Jesus' great exodus for all of mankind from slavery to sin, death, and the devil. And this is a central theme in John's gospel where we get this reading, which, by the way, we'll begin studying in our Bible class the Sunday after Easter, two weeks from today. You don't want to miss it. He takes a cup after the meal, and he gives it as his own blood poured out for the new covenant, the new covenant that had been foretold by the prophet Jeremiah, a covenant of forgiveness. Jeremiah says, I will, the Lord says through Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. Then this road winds from the upper room to Gethsemane, the beautiful Mount of Olives, a place of prayer. It's a place where olives grow and likely were pressed into oil. Jesus himself is pressed in agony this dark night, wrestling in prayer with his father and searching for a different road to still fulfill his father's will any other way. And yet he prays, thy will be done on behalf of all mankind. And the Father's will is done when Jesus gives his life on the cross. The will of God is accomplished. Your salvation is won and you are set free from sin and death by your conquering King Jesus. This is the Father's will that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And Jesus' prayers of thy will be done in the garden ends with his arrest by an armed mob, leading to his trial in a midnight kangaroo court. He's betrayed with a disciple's kiss and denied by his most fiercely loyal disciple, Peter. Peter, he said, he'd go anywhere with Jesus. He'd even kill for him. Peter denies even knowing him. All of the disciples, apart from John, abandon him. The road to the cross travels through the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin. He's put on trial by man-made religion and found guilty of blasphemy simply for telling the truth. Because the truth is, he is the Son of God, the Christ, Israel's true king, and he's condemned for this truth. The next stop on the road is with Pontius Pilate and the Roman government. The civil government is the left hand of God, and there's also a brief detour with Herod, the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, a puppet king and pretender to the throne. And the funny thing is, Herod's not even Jewish. How could he be Israel's king? He's an Idumean, a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. And those two, those two bitter political rivals, Herod and Pilate, they gain a little bit of admiration and respect for each other after this. They become friends because after all, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Jesus is on trial before civil authority. And because they aren't so concerned with blasphemy, the charge this time is treason. You can't claim to be a king in the shadow of the mighty Roman Empire. 
It's a charge that his enemies know is punishable by crucifixion, which is what they really want. Crucifixion as a warning to anyone who would oppose Caesar. And even though Pilate is reluctant to carry this out, he's afraid of the mob. It is more politically expedient to kill an innocent man than lose control of a mob. This is almost always how governments end up with mob rule. A terrorist named Barabbas, which ironically in Hebrew means son of the father. This terrorist is released instead of Jesus. This counterfeit son of the father walks away scot-free and the true son of the father is executed instead. And I mean that literally, instead. In his place, in your place, in mine, we go free and Jesus goes to our death. The road goes through the streets of Jerusalem, the so-called Via Dolorosa, the painful way. A pilgrim there for the Passover, Simon of Cyrene, is forced to help Jesus carry the cross. And the women around him wail and weep and mourn. But Jesus, in all of his almighty compassion, mourns for them, knowing what would befall Jerusalem in a few short decades. The road leads to the place of the skull, Golgotha, Calvary, depending on what language you're dealing with. Now, tradition held that this was the place of a very specific skull, Adam's skull. This is where Adam, another son of God, according to Luke's genealogy in chapter 3, Adam, who brought death into the world, was buried there. The death of Jesus replaces Adam's death and yours and mine. And there's a cross on each side of Jesus' cross. Thieves on his left and on his right, insurrectionists, terrorists even, they represent the world for whom Jesus died. They represent you and me. And one of them also represents you and me in faith. We deserve the sentence, the one criminal says. We admit the same. We confess that we've sinned against God in thought, word, and deed, but like that other guy, we also know that Jesus is innocent. He's the only true innocent that's ever lived. Jesus prays for those who inflict all of these wounds and insults and blasphemies on him. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He prays for us this way too. There's no more hosannas now. No more save us but instead save yourself if you are the Christ. But he doesn't save himself. That's the road that he's traveling. He saves you instead. The sun goes completely black. The earth shakes. The temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. He shouts the last few humble words of faith and trust in his father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His life is in the Father's hands, and now also so is yours, thanks to Jesus. This road leads to a brand new rock tomb, 
reserved for a rich man, the family of Joseph from Arimathea, one of the Sanhedrin even. He hadn't consented to Jesus' death sentence. There's always pockets of believers hiding everywhere. Joseph had been reluctant to follow Jesus publicly thus far, but now he follows him to the end. He goes to Pilate on Jesus' behalf to receive the body for burial so that Jesus isn't dumped in some mass grave. Jesus is buried in a rich man's tomb. And the scripture is fulfilled. They made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death. And the tomb is closed with a giant stone. And so it appears that this is the end of the road. Well, you and I who know the rest of the story, know otherwise. And we know where that road is truly headed. That road is headed to everlasting life with Jesus and in Jesus. And next Sunday, we'll hear that same good news again. Amen. The peace of our God that surpasses all of our human understanding, guard your hearts and minds in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.